This episode is brought to you by Set for Life Insurance. Listen, docs, one of the first steps we took to pay off our student loan debt was realizing we paid way too much for our disability insurance. That all changed when we found Set for Life Insurance. They helped us with a customized insurance policy that met our needs and most of all, budget. To learn more, check out setforlifeinsurance.com. This episode is brought to you by Physician CEO. Finally, a business program for busy doctors just like you. Get the skills of branding, marketing, entrepreneurship, and combine those with your gifts as a physician. Be known as a doc outside the box and define your future. Learn more at physician-ceo.com forward slash D-O-T-B. Welcome to Docs Outside the Box Podcast. This is your official show, looking inside the minds of cutting edge and innovative doctors. Think you'll find these stories in any medical textbook? Sorry. You're getting real live insight from men and women pushing the envelope beyond medicine. Ordinary doctors doing extraordinary things. Let's start now with your host, Dr. Nee Darko. What's good, everyone? This is Dr. Nee. I know you all are very busy with the holiday season, whether it's shopping for last minute gifts or going to different gatherings or getting ready maybe for that last minute vacation. So I really appreciate you tuning in to these last couple of episodes towards the end of the year. So, you know, I hope whatever you're celebrating, whether it's, you know, Hanukkah, Kwanzaa or Christmas, that you are celebrating these times or spending these times with people who you love, people who you respect, and then also at the same time getting a chance to practice some gratitude. I also want you all to take a moment to think about the things that you're going to need to do to break through in 2020. 2020 is going to be a big year, not just because obviously it's the beginning of a new decade, but this is the time like no other to really jump in on what you are or have been sitting on the fence about, what you've been half-stepping about. This is the time to take action on a great year. So I also want to thank you all for listening to last week's episode, which was an Ask Dr. Nee segment. And in that segment, I answered the question alongside Dr. Renee. Um, we answered the question of, should you get an MBA while in medical school? That question was posed to me through Instagram. We also talked about, you know, how Dr. Renee's book launch went. We talked about some other things, including, you know, what are some of our favorite things, including some of our favorite TV shows. It's a fun listen. I'll just say you'll be entertained by this episode. But if you're interested in learning about why you should get an MBA or why you shouldn't get an MBA, I definitely think that that episode is for you. And listen, go ahead and share that with maybe other medical students or even pre-med students who are thinking about choosing a school and wanting to know that if their school offers a dual degree, that may be the final decision in them deciding if they're going to go to that school. So on to this episode. Now, I've talked about locums, independent contracting, several times through the four-year span of this podcast. I've even brought in guests to come and speak about this. So, you know, make sure you refer to the previous episodes about this so you can kind of figure out the rationale as to why people come on. But I know for a lot of you all, you all still may be feeling like you're in the dark as to some of the specifics about locums, right? Like, do you need a separate license to practice as a locum tenens? Should you go with small companies, large companies? Like, things like that a more nuanced view of locums, you're kind of looking for something like that. So on this episode, I brought on one of the OGs, one of the original gangsters, as they say, (laughs) 
of Locum Tenens. His name is Dr. Andrew Wilner. He is a board-certified internist as well as neurologist, and he's been practicing since the 1980s in locums, before they even called it that. And he wrote this book called The Locum Life. It's a physician guide to locum tenens. And this is a book that I highly, highly recommend. Whether you are looking to go into locum tenens, not sure if you want to go into locum tenens. Look, even if you are actually currently on a locums assignment right now, I highly recommend this book to you because there are things that you are going to learn that you probably thought you knew, but you didn't know until you read this book. And I can put myself in that group also. So on this episode, you're going to get a primer as well as a history lesson on locums or that locums life, as I like to call it. And Dr. Andrew Wilner is going to share his experience with locums, being able to balance his medical career as well as his passion and interest in growing his writing as well as a travel career. So this is a great guest. This is a great topic. It's very informative. And this is something that I definitely recommend that you share with that colleague who may be interested in jumping into locums, but not sure, or maybe even looking for a more step-by-step guide than just listening to podcasts. I definitely recommend that you share this episode as well as this book with them. So look, you've heard enough from me. Without further ado, I present Dr. Andrew Wilner, author of The Locum Life, A Physician's Guide to Locum Tenants. Let's get it. Excited to have Dr. Andrew Wilner on Docs Outside the Box. You are a neurologist, multiple award-winning author, and what I'd like to say, an OG of the locums game. You're here to talk about The Locum Life, A Physician's Guide to Locum Tenants, a book that you recently came out with. What's good? Welcome to Docs Outside the Box. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm excited to have you here because I don't know if you know, but locums is a passion for me. This is a book that you said you spent about three years writing. And I have to say, I read it and it is very comprehensive. I've been doing locums since 2012 or so. And I'd have to say it is literally an A to Z comprehensive take on locums. Anybody who's interested, who's thinking about it on the fence, or even someone who's really, you know, seasoned will have a good time reading this book and learn a lot. I've learned a lot also. So I wanted to have you on to talk about all of that related to locums. Oh, well, thanks very much. That was my goal. I started doing locums a long, long time ago before it was really kind of part of the landscape. And the background is for me, it was part of, you know, people talk about work-life balance. Well, in 1982, you didn't talk about work-life balance. For me, it was work-work balance because I knew ever since high school that I was a writer. And my struggle was to find time to do medicine and to write. And so that led to my first locums experience as an ER doc, something that you couldn't do today because they want, you know, board certified ER docs. Well, those days, there was no such thing as a board certified ER doc. If you wanted to work in the ER and you were a doc and they needed you, you could be a pathologist. They would take you and (laughs) did the best you could. So I did my internship at the Long Beach Veterans Hospital. And I knew I wanted to be a doctor and I thought I wanted to be an internal medicine doctor. Those were kind of the gods for me. In those days, the internist was the one who knew everything. And so I did my internal medicine internship and I had things. I always would write on the side. In high school, I'd written plays and poetry, short stories. But internship, pretty demanding thing. So I said to myself, look, you need to be successful at your primary 
goal. You can't be torn between things and then fail at both of them. So when you do your internship, you're going to do your internship. That's 100% of your effort. And make sure that works. Because that was the, my first day off was Christmas Day in my oh, wow. uh, internship. So there wasn't really time to be playing around. So I did it and I love my internship. I did a month of ICU, month of pulmonary, month of renal, month of GI. You know, you start day one on uh, renal, <laughs> all these patients getting dialysis. You don't know what's going on. By the end of the month, you have some clue about how to triage these patients and you've got your differential and you feel a little bit comfortable. But at the end of the year, it's like, well, this is great. I learned all this stuff. It's all great. What am I going to do? And I didn't have a feeling for my direction and it was hard. And it's like, you know, I think I need to breathe here and sort things out. Plus, there was a book I wanted to write. So I found this job in the ER. I worked three overnight, 12-hour shifts during the week. And it was a very small ER. I was the only doctor in the ER. It was Bellwood General Hospital in Bellflower, next to Long Beach. It's a cute little hospital, 83 beds. But people would wander in with all kinds of things. And I had my little bag of books. I had the Washington Manual for Orthopedics, the Washington Manual for Ophthalmology. People get, you know, stuff in their eye. I delivered babies in the ER. <laughs> it was unbelievable experience, but it was three days and the rest of the time I could write. And I realized later that when I sat down to write my book on locum tenants three years ago, I realized, well, you were doing locum tenants way back then. That was the whole idea was to provide income because I had to support myself and to provide balance and open the world. I also remember being shocked, you know, in Long Beach. So I would work all night. In the daytime, I'd go out and there would be people kind of roaming around, you know, shopping on the beach at 10 a.m., 11 a.m. It's like, what do these people do? Because I had been in this corridor, right? I remember when I was a medical student, I could never cash a check. Because by the time I got to the bank, they were closed. I had a check for months and months and months that I couldn't cash. I mean, who has time to go to the bank in the middle of the day when you're a doctor? But there were these other people that had these different lifestyles. Well, some of them worked at night, but some of them just, you know, had different schedules. And I remember that was sort of the first inkling to me that there were other ways to live. So along the way now, I've been able to publish, this is my fourth book. The Locum Life. And it became a, a lifestyle for me. It allowed me to travel. I traveled a lot in, I guess, growing up in Europe. I'd seen a lot of countries, but one day I wanted to go to someplace different and I went to Southeast Asia. And at that time, I had a full time job. For eight years, I was in a traditional neurologic practice in Charlotte, North Carolina. I developed and ran the epilepsy center. We had a world-class epilepsy center. I went to work every day. I was on call. I had partners. We had group meetings on the weekends. We had breakfast meetings. We had dinner meetings. You know, we're trying to run the business, work with the hospital. I had a directorship. Well, after eight years of that, I said, well, there's got to be something more. But while I was there, I took vacation. That's what I was telling you. So I had to plan six months in advance for this vacation, two weeks off. This was a huge deal. And I like nature. So I flew to the island of Borneo and I went diving on an island called the Sipaden, which is known for nesting sea turtles. 
And I thought I was on another planet. It was like, wow, this is really cool. And there was another physician on the trip. He was an ER doc. He had uh, time off. And that was kind of another awakening that I didn't have to be in this narrow, narrow life, which I enjoyed and I think I was pretty good at. But I could see that the world was a larger place. So from the time that you did work in the ER up until you took this vacation, in between that time, no locums? Yeah. So I kind of jumped around a little bit, but I did internship. I did a year of ER. I then went back two years at LA County as an internal medicine resident. And that was busy. That was busy. The other thing I discovered during that locums year, and I think that's a really important point, is that I saw everything. I remember one day somebody drove their car into the telephone pole in front of the hospital. And it was this big noise. And I got out of the ER and I looked down the driveway. And then the EMS came. I said, they're not going to bring those people in here, are they? (laughs) (laughs) I'm not a trauma center. But of course they did. I mean, we were the closest. They drove right into the telephone pole in front of the hospital. So I got these guys with multiple, you know, you see that stuff as a trauma surgeon. I don't want to be seeing that stuff as like an internship trained medicine resident. But I discovered I love neurology. People would come in with double vision or numbness or tingling or dizziness, weird complaints. Every now and then a neurologist would come in and do this sort of complicated, fantastic exam. This is cool. And of course, it's about the brain. I mean, as a writer, everything's about the brain, right? What makes people tick? It's the brain. So I thought this is the way for me to combine my desire to understand humanity and pursue a a worthwhile course in medicine. I'm really interested. During that time when you were working in the ER, having the interest of writing a book, and then even talked about even before that, writing plays in high school and so forth. Like, what was the inspiration or who inspired you during that time? Was there, you know, an author that you looked up to or a playwright that you wanted to be like? There were, but I looked for role models in those days. Michael Crichton had just, you know, with Andromeda Strain and his life was very, very interesting. But I studied these people, but I don't think they were really inspirations to me. I kind of studied them to see how they made their lives work. Michael Crichton was a genius. And he went to Harvard Medical School and he even wrote about it. And the problem for him at Harvard Medical School, it was boring. (laughs) You know, (laughs) just wasn't interesting enough for him. And his father had been a professional writer and he had written also. And I think he wrote a book called The Five Patients, sort of a documentary type book, a nonfiction book. But then his first book, Andromeda, was a huge hit. They made it to a movie. So he became a successful writer at the age of 26. He never did a residency. He never really thought of himself as a clinician. I think medical school for him was just kind of like a little foray into another part of his education. So that wasn't really what I wanted to do. I think writing is just something you're born to want to do. There was this movie about a boy who loves to dance where he grows up in this blue collar. It ha- it's just his name. I'm trying to remember the name. He grows in this blue collar community in England, you know, where the father is, works in some plant and his mother played the piano. There was an artistic thing, but he wants to dance. He eventually becomes a ballet dancer, you know, but the things he goes through is like everything worked against him. And I think when you're born with an artistic 
sort of inclination, whether it's uh, painting or singing or dancing. It's not that you want to be like that other person. It's just you kind of can't help it. That's kind of who you are. I'm really interested in, since you mentioned that, like, what was it like? Because, I mean, I'm sure you had to talk to fellow residents or even, you know, other physicians and just talking about, you know, your passion to write and so forth. Like, what was it like talking to them about it? Oh, it was enormously frustrating. Enormously frustrating. People do not understand. They think it's like a hobby. You know, it's not like that. It's something you need to do and you want to do that's part of you. I don't know if I go so far as like eating and breathing, but even in high school, I remember I interviewed, there was a local author who was uh, well-published. So I think I was on the school magazine. So I went and interviewed the guy. I asked him, I said, why do you write? Isn't it difficult? He said, yes, it's very difficult. It makes me miserable. And I said, so why do you write? He said, because I'm even more miserable when I'm not writing. And I think he said it as a little bit of a, you know, he was playing with me. I was 16 years old. I think there's a lot of truth to that. I think if you have a passion and it's something you really want to do, like seeing patients, if you're really a clinician at heart, somebody said, you can't see patients anymore. You're going to sit behind a desk and you're going to be a hospital administrator. And it's like, we'll give you the same salary. It's like, oh my God. You know, that wouldn't work for you. You wouldn't want to get up every day, you know, and rush in to see those papers on your desk. You want to be helping people. So I think it's a little bit like that. But in fact, I remember I was so naive and innocent. I had a medical school interview and the guy asked me, you know, why do you want to go to medical school? So I told him what I was telling you, that as a young person, I really wanted to understand people. So I told this physician. He seemed like an old guy to me. He must have been 45 or 50 years old. He was in a traditional practice. He had some sort of, you know, adjunct appointment at the medical school. And he thought he was doing a great thing by interviewing the candidates that I wanted to go to medical school to make me a better writer. That fell really flat. I can imagine it got real quiet, a pin dropped. <laughs> And he wrote me a very negative recommendation. I didn't get into that school. And it never dawned on me that a physician would be so narrow-minded. You know, I grew up, I guess, in a fairly enlightened home intellectually. And to me, physicians were pretty high on that list. You know, they're writing books and, you know, they're doing interesting things and they're well-traveled. But I discovered that a lot of physicians aren't that enlightened, and it hurt me because I was so naive. It's interesting because I'd like you to compare and contrast your thought process now on, for example, what do you think your reaction would have been now saying that you were coming out of medical school wanting to have that type of experience, right? With the current state of things, with the millennial generation out there, compared to how it was when you were coming out in the, I'd say what, the early 80s. Compare and contrast how that experience was and what do you think it is now? Well, I have the advantage now. I'm associate professor of neurology at the University of Tennessee here in Memphis. So I have daily exposure to medical students and residents. I teach the residents and the students on the clinical service. So I kind of see where they're at. That's kind of a story too. And we can get back to that if you want, is how I paradoxically did locums for such a long time and ended up with a full-time job. That's another advantage. And you talked about it in your podcast the other day, is that by going to many, many different places, you can kind of see what's out there and what you really want. 
and what fits with you. So I was doing locums in South Dakota, in Minnesota, at the Mayo Clinic Phoenix, in a busy private practice south of Boston. And I discovered that the kind of position that I wanted was to have some teaching component. Because otherwise, it's just work. You know, the patients are all lined up and you got to see them all. And if you see something really interesting, it just slows you down. <laughs> you know, you just got to get it done. But if you have a student or you have a resident who's never seen it before, then you can talk about it. It's like, why is that eye bouncing up and down? It's like, that's actually pretty rare. And this kind of head trauma, this guy's got vertical nystagmus. I had a case of that a few weeks ago. It's not even in the books. You don't have it and it went away. But it gave us an opportunity to really learn more about the brain and about this patient. But if I had been by myself in the community hospital, you'd say, oh, your eyes are bouncing up and down. It'll get better. Move on. So I discovered I really love the teaching component. And so I started looking for a job that would allow me to teach, but also very hands-on clinically. I've done some research, but it's not my career. And I wanted that kind of in-between position. And locums gave me the freedom just to kind of casually look. So I interviewed in Portland, Oregon with a Kaiser. And they had a great job, great benefits, reasonable hours. Because of course, I'm always looking for some time also because I want to be writing kind of on the side, but I still got to make a living. Anyway, the job was boring. Then I interviewed at a university job in Connecticut. So here's the anecdote. When I'm talking with the chairman of the department, we were talking about interviewing because they're hiring a lot of young faculty and they needed a guy like me who was a little, well, let's call it seasoned. And he said, you know, the residents are different these days. He said, we really have to offer them this work-life balance. He said, otherwise we can't get the best residents. And we were joking. He said, you know, back when we were applying, he said, if you even mentioned work-life balance, and this is the term he used, that was the kiss of death. I can imagine. Yeah, I can imagine. I mean, the idea was you were a resident in the old-fashioned term that you lived at the hospital. You know, being a doctor was a special thing, and you were going to put every ounce of your energy of your life into that. And if you wanted to say that, oh, by the way, I want to be a writer, or, oh, by the way, I want to get married. In fact, the classes before me had to ask permission from their chairman to get married. Okay. Has it changed? I mean, today, you know, I have residents who are pregnant, you know, like inconceivable. When I was a resident, that kind of balance would even be not only just tolerated, but even encouraged. Where did you get the inspiration to say, okay, now that you know what's going on, where did you decide, okay, I want to write a book about this and be as comprehensive? with this as possible? Ah, as a writer, this is my fourth book. So I wrote two books on epilepsy because I was also fellowship trained as an epileptologist. It seemed like a natural thing to do. One was for patients. It's called Epilepsy 199 Answers, all the things you'd want to know, kind of like an FAQ. But back in those days, they didn't have the internet. And then I wrote another book for physicians because I discovered that epilepsy was not managed very well in general in the community. So now I'm interested in writing a new book. So it's like, well, what do I know something about? And it's like, well, I've been doing locums for a long time. So I searched Amazon. Are there any books on locums? Nothing. There was like a pamphlet of like 30 pages that a doctor, you know, how to succeed in locums had published. 
But there wasn't anything comprehensive. And there's another side of this, too, is that I do consider myself to be an educator. You know, I like what I say and what I write to be useful to somebody. And I could see that locums really had a place to help physicians navigate the job market that we have now, which for physicians is kind of disastrous. You know, in 2016, I learned this researching the book, was the first time that more than half of physicians were employed. Oh, yeah. Did not, did not own their own practices. And you talked about this, too, is that one of the reasons I wanted to become a physician and one of the reasons you wanted to become a physician was autonomy. I want to be a professional. I want to help people. I want to earn a good living. And I want to control my life. That was a key in my decision making way back. See, I graduated college in 1977 when I graduated from Yale. But those were on my checklist. That's what I'm looking for. You know, it's real funny that you mentioned that because that's not what was advertised. When I was growing up, I was learning about physicians on TV. There wasn't anybody in my family in the healthcare field at the time. You know, so watching the Cosby show or, you know, whatever show was on, I'm still old enough that I still remember reruns of emergency, right? So that experience of a physician kind of being employed, I never got that concept. They were just at the top of the food chain. They were in charge. There was this nobility. I think it's a shame. And I think for physicians who are my age, it's a huge adjustment. I think maybe for some of the residents these days, they kind of, that's what's out there and they see their options and it's different. But for the guys caught in the middle, you know, it's like when you're playing a game and they change the rules in the middle, it's like, oh, wait a minute. That's not what I signed up for, the whole point of this. And I think that's why you see, I think it's one of the things that's contributed to burnout because, you know, burnout is when people are unhappy, but physicians don't get unhappy because they're overworked. Physicians are hardworking people. I mean, we did residency every other night, you know, becoming a trauma surgeon. Nobody becomes a trauma surgeon because they're afraid of hard work. So I don't think physicians burn out because of hard work. I mean, it's the wrong kind of work and it's a work that is not self-propelled. You know, when, when you're digging a ditch, if you're the one who decided to dig that ditch, it's a whole other story than if somebody tells you to dig that ditch. And now a word from our sponsor. Meet Dr. Arthur Cummings. He's a busy ophthalmologist practicing all the way in Dublin, Ireland. Recently, he finished physician CEO. Check out what got him to jump on the transatlantic flight to participate in this program. My initial response would simply be just do it. This is one of those programs that is so good. It's very likely to be the best education you've ever received. And you realize then as a physician, how little we really know about our businesses, even though we're running businesses that are quite large. And the level of training is so fantastic. The education is so good. The faculty is immaculate and you're in a group of people who are like-minded. So just the entire environment is an amazing learning experience and really a good incubator for growing your practice. So if you're a physician who's looking to start your own venture or even lead your practice or department, then you can't afford to miss this opportunity. Class is filling up. Learn more at physician-ceo.com forward slash D-O-T-B. 
So the book. So I thought that writing all this stuff, I realized I had a lot of stories and pros and cons of locums also. There are negatives. So I thought if I put this in a comprehensive book, people who are thinking about it, maybe they can see locums would work for them. And I broke it down into three types of physicians. There is the physician who is completing their residency or fellowship. Some of those docs, and I work with them, they know exactly what they want to do. I want to be a movement disorder specialist in Arizona. I've already talked to them. They're going to hire me as soon as my fellowship is done. Some of them really are clueless. It's like they don't know which part of the country they want to live in. They don't know if they want to do inpatient or outpatient or subspecialized. Maybe they have a partner who's in training, but they're not at the same level. You know, there's a couple years difference in terms of when they're going to finish. And so for them, locums is an opportunity to get out there and work, try the world without having to make a big commitment, see what they like. Plus, they can wait for their partner, you know, to catch up. And then a little being a little more worldly, you also find out what you're worth in the locums world. And I I definitely agree with that. That was my experience. I was the first here. So I came out as soon as I finished fellowship. I couldn't find a job that I really wanted to be at. You mentioned it earlier. You're interviewing just for three to five hours and you're making a long-term commitment just based off of that and just didn't seem right to me. So doing locums, like you said, gives you an opportunity to try out a place first. And also at the same time, I was waiting for my fiance at the time, you know, to finish her stuff. You know, we made a really good transition. So then you have the mid-career docs who they're happy, they're doing okay, but they want to make some extra money so they can work during their vacation, you know, pick up some extra cash to get rid of the mortgage or get rid of the car payments. Or maybe they're thinking of a move. Maybe they're going to transition into some non-clinical venture. They want to start doing some real estate. Maybe they're dreaming of opening a restaurant but they don't really want to give up what they have. So locums, they can kind of give up their permanent job, still stay active as a clinician and not put all their eggs in one basket. All these non-clinical things sound great, but most of them don't work. So, you know, you have to protect yourself. And if you're a good doc and you like it, I'm just going to add that one thing that physicians don't realize who sort of say, oh, I'm done with this. I'm going to go do something else. Is that if you're out for more than two years of mm, clinical practice, yeah. it is almost impossible to get back in because the hospitals require and the insurance companies require you to have peer review, you know, or recommendations from physicians who have seen your clinical work within the last two years. And even if you get elected to Congress, you know, and you're passing health care bills, you haven't seen a patient in two years, you can't get back into the clinic. And it is a ridiculous rule. And I know a lot about it because I suffered from it. I had a 10-year period as a medical journalist where I worked full-time as a medical journalist. And I had trouble getting back into clinical medicine, even though I knew more clinical medicine from going to medical conferences eight times a year over 10 years than I ever knew when I was in practice. That didn't matter. We live in a very sort of rule-governed society now where the rule is much more important than the individual circumstance. So it's just a caution. If you do plan to leave clinical medicine and that's what you want to do, that's great. 
But remember, if you're out for more than two years, even if it's just to raise a family, you want to have a couple kids, there are sad stories of, you know, young female OBGYN physicians, you know, and they raise their kids because they're in their late 30s. Next thing you know, they can't get back and be a doctor. And I think that's tragic. I've written about these physician reentry programs. I mean, what a nightmare. Anyway, then there's the third category of what I call pre-retirement. There are a lot of physicians who are in their 60s, even 70s. They love what they do. They've been doing it for 40, 50 years. Some of them don't have any hobbies. They just love going to work and taking care of patients. But, you know, they, they can see the clock's running out. And maybe they want to spend some time with their grandchildren or they've, you know, always wanted to travel or do something or develop a hobby that, you know, they're, they used to play the piano or they just need some more me time, but they don't want to retire. And the way medicine is structured, and again, I was victim to this when I tried to take some time off for writing, the traditional medical group does not tolerate or reward people who want to work part-time. That if you work part-time, say 50% time, you end up with about 30% of your salary and a big loss of respect. You really don't count anymore. I mean, if you're lucky and you have a great group and they want to accommodate you four days a week and cut back your call, that's terrific. But that is the exception. For most physicians, the decision is I either got to quit or I just got to keep with the schedule. So locums is a way of saying, okay, I'm done. I don't need this contract. I'm going to spend the winters in Florida, but the summers, I'm going to sign up with my locums company. I'm going to go wherever I want. I've always wanted to see Alaska. I'm going to work six months in Alaska. Sign me up for that. (laughs) Right? They have their identity as a physician, right? And plus they have something to offer. People ask me, uh, I just had my 64th birthday. Happy birthday. Thank you very much. And it was a great birthday. But people do come up to me, it may have something to do with the gray hair, and they say, oh, Dr. Wilner, when are you going to retire? And it's like, well, you know, I think I just got good at being a neurologist. It's taken me about 30 years, but neurology is really hard. And I think I finally got it. And I think that's true. You can certainly be a competent physician right out of residency. There is an art of medicine that you only accumulate with experience and hopefully wisdom. And I think it's tragic that guys are being forced into retirement that have so much to offer. And a locums is another tool to let them continue to give. I'd like to get your opinion. And since you've been you know, in this game for a significant period of time. What are your thoughts on the different agencies out there? You know, there's the small agencies, there's the large agencies. Does one have an advantage over the other? Do you have a preference? Well, as background, I've worked with two agencies and about half of my locums I've contracted directly through connections. So when you mean, just so the audience understands, so you have a contract directly with the hospital, not through an agency to some of your assignments. Right, exactly. You are working at the hospital through an agency. Right, and I think there are pros and cons. For example, I worked fairly recently at the Mayo Clinic in Phoenix because at that time, the chairman of neurology and I were both giving a lecture 
And we were chatting, we were sitting next to each other at a national conference. And he said to me, Andrew, you know, what are you doing? I said, well, I'm doing locums, you know, I'm writing. And he said, well, you think you might want to help us out? And it turns out, I didn't really know the whole backstory, but they had had some kind of contract dispute there and three of their neurologists had left overnight. (laughs) And leaving whoever was left very unhappy because all the work sort of landed on the guys who are left. And what happens then is they want to leave too, right? You know, it's kind of a domino effect. So he really needed somebody like now. And I was available now. So the Mayo Clinic's pretty reputable organization. So they provided housing and I contracted with them for a salary per diem. And it was great. But it's hard to recommend that to somebody. It's like, okay, go out, find your buddy who's the chairman of, you know, trauma surgery. That's that's tough to do. Yeah, Well, that's part of networking. The downside of that is that you don't have an agency who's representing you. So that if the Mayo Clinic defaulted and my check never showed up, I don't have anybody to go to and say, hey, you know, you got to help me with this because I'm the one who did the contracting. So, you know, I didn't think that was going to happen. So your beef would be with the hospital, whereas if you worked with an agency, you technically... Your beef would be with the agency. They owe you money, basically, as opposed to a hospital. Right. So that's a whole other story. So I think, first of all, if you're starting out, I think you definitely want an agency because an agency will find that you tell them what you want. You know, I want to do outpatient medicine, you know, nine to five in a rural community, and I want to do it for six months. Well, they'll go find that position for you. And then they'll say, this is what they'll pay you. And you can decide, well, that's enough. It's not enough. And we'll find you a nice housing. We'll get you there. We'll pay for that. And uh, we'll take care of all of your expenses, even a rental car. All you have to do is show up and work. I mean, I think that's a great deal. And uh, so I've worked with uh, two agencies. And you talked about this a little bit. How many agencies do you want to work with? Well, one is great. You want a relationship. And two might be better because sometimes the job opportunities don't necessarily overlap. So each agency doesn't represent the same opportunities. So, you know, I want to go to Nevada. Well, agency A may not have any positions in Nevada, but agency B does. So more than two agencies, I think, is probably just too much overhead to keep up with. You know, it depends on your situation. In terms of which agency, in my book, I talk, there's a whole chapter about How do you choose an agency and what do you want? I think, and I use real estate as a kind of an analogy. I think there's a lot of similarities. When you go to buy a house, you can buy it directly, right? For sale by owner, right? So that's your direct connection. But, you know, you're it. If you screw up, there's there's nobody to go to. It's I messed up, right? You're it. That's fine. And that can work great and save you the agency fees. But if you're not really a maven in the real estate world, you probably want a real estate agent who knows the market, knows what the house is worth. You tell them, I want, you know, a three-story house with a playroom for the kids and a big kitchen and a jet tub, and they'll go find it for you. And then you decide whether you want it or not. But more important, and there's over 100 agencies out there. And I'll add one other thing. There is something called NALTO which is the National Association of Locum Tenants Companies. And you definitely want an agency that's part of that group. It's sort of a self-regulatory, you know, food of approval kind of, you know, stamp. Mm-hmm. So most big agencies are members of NALTO. If they're not, you'd have to ask uh, why. More important than is it Century 21 or is it Southbees? It's your agent at that agency. 
So developing a relationship with them is important. That's what it's just like when you're shopping for a house, you know, I mean, is it century 21? They've got, you know, thousands of agents. It's that agent who's really got your best interests at heart. They say they get it. They know, Dr. Wilder, I'm not trying to sell you this million dollar house when you told me you want one for 300,000, you know. You want somebody who's got your best interests at heart. And you do that over the phone. And, you know, agents work on commission. They want you to work and they want you to work over and over again. They don't want to send you to one job and you're miserable and everybody else is miserable and you never come back, right? They want somebody who's going to work with them for as long as possible with repeat business. So a relationship is really key. I'm really interested because you mentioned chapters before. Like I said, very comprehensive book for anybody who doesn't know anything about locums or to people who do know about locums. I'm really interested. What is your favorite chapter in the book? (laughs) So I say this in the introduction, but my favorite chapter in the book is the chapter I didn't write. And that's chapter 20. Because as I wrote the book, I realized that I had a lot of interesting stories, some of which I shared with you and my trip to Mayo Clinic and South Dakota and Minnesota, and there's all kinds of anecdotes. And I thought, you know, I bet this book would be a lot more interesting if I had stories from other physicians. I mean, I wonder what it's like to be a rehab physician or an orthopedist or a psychiatrist or a family physician or somebody who's pre-retirement or somebody right out of residency. So through my network, I contacted about a dozen physicians. And I did some oral interviews, and I taped them, and I did some email interviews. And so there's a dozen stories at the end of the book where I asked them, what was your best locums experience? What was your worst locums experience? And what advice would you give to someone who wants to do locums? So it's, they are pretty much unedited. I just edited you know, for clarity, but I didn't really edit what they said. And it's amazing. And I tell people, if you think you're interested in locums, it's uh, first of all, buy my book. Second of all, (laughs) I love it. I love the plug. Right. Read chapter 20. And if you're still interested, if you're really excited after chapter 20, then go back to chapter one. Then read whether it's chapter four, five or six. You know, are you post-residency? Are you uh, mid-career or are you pre-retirement? You know, then read those chapters. And then go read the rest of the book. But start with chapter 20, because that really gives you a feel for the nitty gritty and the spectrum of uh, experiences. I mean, it's important that this book isn't just a book that says go do locums. Chapter three is the advantages of locums. We've talked about a lot of them. But chapter four is the disadvantages of locums. And I tried to make it very balanced. And that I've been very gratified that one of the uh, comments I've gotten from people who've read the book is that it's very balanced. Yes. And yeah, I agree with you there. Thank you. Yeah, it's uh, not, you're not talking about locums as a fanatic, so to speak. Like you try to give, I agree, as balanced a view as possible, which is definitely incorporated in the stories that you talk, the stories that are chronicled in, in chapter 20. You know, I agree with that, that assessment. And I think that's very important because to me, locums, it's just a tool to navigate your life as a physician. In fact, the ignorance of it is incredible. I was recently at the American Academy of uh, Neurology meeting in uh, Philadelphia just a couple of weeks ago, and Comp Health, which is one of the oldest locum tenants company and one of the largest, and I've worked with them, 
they liked my book. And so they bought a couple hundred copies. So I was at the meeting signing books and giving them away to people who prospectively might want to do locum. So it was fascinating for me because I got to answer a lot of questions. One doctor came up to me and said, what kind of license do you need to do locums? And it was, I had to think about it for a minute. And they thought locums was some other kind of practice. It's Mm -hmm. like, well, you're a physician. Locums is not like a special, it's not a subspecialty. It's just a way. I use substitute teacher. You're a substitute teacher. When I was in school, we used to have these substitute teachers. Teachers out sick, another teacher would show up for a day or a week. That's who you are as locums. You're just taking the place. That's what locum tenens means. You're holding the place for the permanent person. You know, I'm actually interested in your thought process because I'm sure the locums arena, the locums game, I'm putting it in air quotes, has changed from when you were doing it to now. Do you ever think, because I get this sense that it feels like it's more of a corporate sense now than how it was before. And now there are even more jobs that are coming out that it's almost like a locums lifestyle, but you're still employed. You know, like you see that in hospitalist work, you see that now in trauma surgery work where they tout like living like a locums, but you're still employed. So I'm really interested on your thoughts on, you know, the way and the direction that you see locums going in and also how physicians can play a role in it. And what your thoughts are in these situations where, you know, doctors really aren't in control. They're kind of just controlling their own schedule, but they're not really in control of these companies. So I'd like to get your thoughts on that. Oh, okay. I think that's very, very interesting. I think globally, right, we live in a world that's becoming more and more corporate, right? The the corporations are becoming as powerful as governments, right? Just in in general. So you've got Google and Apple got these huge companies that yield a lot of infl- Facebook, you know, power. So that sort of affects everything. I agree. As a locums, you're still an employee, right? You're still working for someone who is making money off of you, right? They're taking a cut. Now they're providing a service. They're finding you a job. They're paying your expenses. They're taking responsibility. They're providing your malpractice and all the companies do that. But you know, they're still kind of a parasite you know, when it comes to, you know, you're just, you're just being honest. <laughs> you're the one that's doing the work, right? But that's true if you're employed, right? I mean, if you have a full-time job, somehow the business is making money and you're getting your salary and hopefully it's equitable. The beauty of locums is this, the, the flexibility and the short-term commitment. So at least you have the illusion that you're, at least you're deciding when you want to work and you're bargaining for each job. And, you know, you say, yeah, that's good enough. I'll do well. And the potential to do well is there. In terms of uh, growth, I did a lot of research for the book. And in 2002, there were approximately 25,000 physicians in the U.S. doing locums here and there. In 2016, which is the last year, pretty much we have data, Mm 50,000. And that has a lot to do with the changes we talked about before and where it's a way for physicians to kind of empower themselves. Now, the other, and you're absolutely right. I mean, locums companies are uh, corporate. They're, you know, they're big companies. And there is now a move for some physicians to sort of set up their own companies. Like, why should Comp Health or Staff Care or Weatherby or Jackson and Coker, all these agencies, why should they be making money on my work? I'm a doctor. I understand locums better than anybody. Why don't I start my own company? 
So there's Lucidity, right, and Nomad, which are two sort of companies that have tried to take sort of the Airbnb approach. You know, let's uh, you put all your credentials there, and the hospitals will put all their you know needs there, and somehow the computer's going to match them up, and then you guys go to it and figure out how much you want to get paid, and off you go. And we'll cut out, you know, most of the middleman. You know, Nomad and Lucidity, they got to get paid. But they don't have a whole staff of agents and travel agents and physical plant and buildings. And theoretically, it should work out best for everybody. So that experiment is still in progress. I've never worked with either of those two. They're kind of new in my sort of locum's experience. And uh, they both still exist. And in fact, one of them, I think it was Lucidity, just got bought. I got some email yesterday by yet a bigger sort of company that does staffing. And so it looks like that model might work. And then there are individual physicians who said, gee, I really know the market because I've researched it myself. I ought to be the one doing locums. And if I'm not mistaken, uh, Dr. Darko has a small company that, that does <laughs> something similar. Yeah, And uh, I think that's fantastic because, you know, why should it be at the corporate level? And just in general, I think, you know, I grew up when things were much more personal. I still like to talk to people on the phone, you know, email's okay. But I think that personal connection is really, really important. And doctor to doctor is a whole different thing than doctor to uh, corporation. So I think that's a great thing. Well, Dr. Wilner, this has been a really great interview. And like I said, I think the book is really great. I think it's very comprehensive. And I do agree with you. Whatever stage that you're in, you're definitely going to gain something from this. Obviously, I'm now more middle career now, but I've been doing locums in the beginning. And I just found this book was really, you know, covered things that, you know, I didn't even think about or things that if I was writing, I wouldn't even think about. I mean, you're covering everything from talking about the origins of locums to all the way to what kind of cell phone plans you should get if you're going to be traveling, which is pretty smart, right? <laughs> you know, the laptops and the, you know, the using an iPad and so forth, things that you just don't think about, you know, and using what type of luggage to take. So I really had a good time reading it. And I think it's a really great read. So for those who are learning and listening, and they want to learn more about you, where can they find more about you? Where can they follow you? And then where can they find your book at? The best place to go is my website, which is www.andrewwilner.com. Or just go directly to Amazon. And uh, all my books are on uh, Amazon. If you go to my website and buy the book at a discount, there's a link there. Or just go directly to Amazon. I also found a new widget uh, just yesterday, and I put it on my website where you can uh, ask me a question. Yep, I yeah. saw that. And, <laughs> Speak and, uh, right. And I thought that's great. So uh, you got 90 seconds. <laughs> but I've encouraged people when I was at the meeting uh, giving away the book, it's like, you know, contact me, ask me a question, because I think in my growing up, I suffered from a lack of uh, mentors. You know, you always hear people, oh yeah, I had these great mentors. I didn't have so many great mentors and I would like to give back in that way. So if I can answer somebody's question, there's no obligation to buy the book, just uh, send me a note and I will do my very best to give you a best uh, answer. I love it, love it. Well, Dr. Wilner, thanks again for being on Docs Outside the Box. Thanks for having me.